You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I guess my first question for you, I'm always fascinated by this. Uh, What were you like growing up as a kid? (laughs) That's a great question, Jared. Never been asked that before. I was a little short kid with glasses who wanted to be an athlete and couldn't for the most part. Now, my best sport was basketball. And in fifth grade, I was one of the best players in the grade. And then everybody shot past me in height. So that was that. Played soccer in high school. But I was still tiny. And while size doesn't really matter in soccer, it mattered because I was so small. I get knocked off the ball all the time. Played JV three years, and the fourth year, the coach said to me, I still want John JV. You're going to get crushed out there. I said, I can't take any more JV. Please put me on varsity. I don't care if I ever play. And that's what happened. So I was kind of that person. And because I couldn't make basketball teams after fifth grade for the most part, that's how I sort of got into other things, writing being one of them. And really, that's sort of what led to all this, I guess. So when did you develop a, a love or, a, I guess, even an interest in writing? Was it in high school or, or before that? Or, or when about did that relationship start? It was high school. And a couple things happened. One, in my sophomore year, I believe, I tried out for the basketball team again, failed again. And the coach was a good guy. and He said to me, hey, why don't you be the manager? These guys on the team are all your friends anyway. Just keep stats, do that. And I did that at the same time I started writing for the high school paper, eventually became editor of the high school paper, and I also wrote a weekly sports column for the local town newspaper, which was nothing, but it was something kind of to get you into writing. So when I decided to go to college or look at different colleges, that was the priority, finding a place where I could either work for a great student newspaper or go to a journalism school and I ultimately went to Penn which had and has a great student newspaper the Daily Pennsylvanian right correct that's right Jared thank you all right you got it now I know for me I I didn't start broadcasting until college and it was a great way to learn you you could you know fail and it really didn't mean a whole lot and and you know I have so many great experiences uh from that time, what was it like for you? I mean, as someone who came in with some experience, and, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, you had some some pretty high leverage roles and responsibilities with the paper. Uh, what was that experience like, and what were some of the most important elements that helped you grow into uh, you know who you are now, not only as a, a writer, but as a person who is a writer and all the, the uh, social uh, elements that go into doing your job? Well, first of all, when I got to the school and I went to the paper to the introductory meeting, I thought I could do what I did in high school, which is news, sports, whatever I wanted to. 
And I sat down with a sports editor. That was my first meeting. And he said, hey, you can't do both here. It's too big. We have too big a paper. <laughs> you go on one track or the other. And the guys in sports, and there were a few women, too, in sports, and they seemed cooler than the people in news. So that's how I chose <laughs> to become a sports writer. And that is the honest truth, Jared. Now, as far as what I learned, really, almost everything. And the beauty of that place was it was a self-run student newspaper. It still is. The school actually had nothing to do with it. And back then, we had those students from the Wharton School of Business selling the ads and running the business side. And, of course, they were the future business people of our country, leaders. And we had a great editorial staff as well. And it was one of these things where you learn from the people above you. And we all taught each other. So kind of everything started there for me. My best friends today are still the guys that I worked with then at the school paper. And there was a guy named Rich Hoffman who became a columnist in Philadelphia he was five years ahead of me, but was already in Philadelphia at the Daily News, even at a college. That's how good he was. And he kind of was a role model, although I didn't know it then, for how to carry yourself. He was very humble and would roll his eyes at us when we get out of line, which was often. And it kind of taught me, hey, man, you're not what you think you are, or you're not as good as you think you are at any point. <laughs> Just kind of keep your wits about you. And I try to carry that with me even today. When you were growing up, were there writers who you would always make a point to read or, or maybe try and, you know, learn from as far as writing style? Yes. Uh, Mike Lupica, I would say, was my hero. I grew up on the island, and he was the guy I really looked up to and thought was brilliant. He was a columnist for the New York Daily News for most of that time. And in those days, he was really something else. And not that he isn't today, but it, it was, he was at the peak of his powers. And Peter Vesey was another guy I loved to read. He was the NBA writer for the New York Post. But all of those guys, really. And then once I got to school, I was around, well, not really around, but I was reading all those great sports writers at the Philadelphia Daily News and the Inquirer. And you try to learn something from everybody you read, and I was in a great position to read great people. All right, now I, I've got to tell you I'm not related to this person, uh, but I, I did read that a, a gentleman by the name of Dick <laughs> Sandler uh, had a, I guess, a, a, a pivotal conversation with you in which he encouraged you after college to go to law school, and, and if I read it correctly, that kind of irked you and uh, that was, I guess, a motivating force. Not not the only reason, certainly, but something that lit a, a fire under your behind in, in terms of pursuing writing. What what can you explain? I guess that that story and, and that moment or series of moments in in your life. Sure, I was an intern at Newsday, which then and now really good sports section, and I worked my the summer after my sophomore year and the summer after my junior year at Newsday. So. In my senior year, I went to see the sports editor, whose name was Dick Sandler, over Christmas break. And I was under no illusions whatsoever that Newsday was going to hire me. I knew I wasn't good enough for that. There was another sports writer two years ahead of me who actually was good enough and spent a year in, I believe it was Cocoa Beach, Florida, before Newsday brought him right back. 
That guy's name is Tom Verducci. And ah. he was, even then, a superstar. But I wasn't like that. And I wasn't that good. And so I knew going in, okay, I just want some advice. How does he think I should go about it? And what he said, essentially, was, you should go to law school. Now, it wasn't like I walked out of the room angry and vowing to prove him wrong. But I remember telling my dad this. It didn't sit well with him. He thought that was wrong. And as I thought about it, you know, I wasn't going to listen to him. I was going to do what I wanted to do. And I ended up applying for 75, at 75 newspapers, getting rejected at every one. Finally got to the York Daily Record in York, Pennsylvania, largely because a friend of mine was there and recommended me. And yes, I did carry that as motivation. And today, when young people talk to me, I try never to say, don't do this. Now, I will be very honest about the state of the business and the difficulty of getting jobs and how it's changed from even when I was coming up, but I would never tell a young person not to pursue their dream. To me, that is just wrong, and that is essentially what he did. And as an interesting footnote here, Jared, years later, maybe, I don't know, five years ago, his son reached out to me on Facebook and tells me, I hear you telling this story. I guess I was quoted as telling the story in some article about me or whatever. And it's just wrong. I know it's wrong. I know the people at Newsday at the time, they said that wasn't true. I said, really? I said, now, I don't mind anybody coming at me, but there were two people in that room. <laughs> <laughs> and why would I make that up? <laughs> so it happened. And Dick Sandler, don't get me wrong, was a great sports editor. And uh, he did some great things in the paper. But I don't know, in my case... The one thing that he didn't read, well, maybe he by talent was short, but I had a desire. And sometimes desire can overcome a lack of talent. Do you, I guess, did you ever have any conversations with Dick, uh, Dick Sandler after that or as your career really started to get going or was that the end no, of No, he, he passed away, I don't recall when, and we weren't close or anything, and there was no reason for me to have a conversation with him. And a lot of other people at Newsday were really good to me, and actually he was good to me. It was not like we hated each other or anything like that. It was just he didn't see it. And you know what? It's a subjective business, and he was fully entitled to that opinion, and probably he was right in certain ways. I wasn't mature enough as a writer or a reporter to maybe – impress him enough to think that I could do it. But that is the way it kind of went down. And Tom Verducci's hair back then, was it the same as it is now? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, again, I'm not kidding, Jared. I was an intern. He had already gone. He, he had graduated college. I believe Tom's two years older than me. And he was spoken of so highly even then. And I feel like my entire career... He's always been, and to me, he's the best baseball writer in the country, maybe the best baseball writer ever. So I always feel like he's been at that level above. And not that I'm striving to get to that, but it's just it's interesting to me how it, our paths have gone parallel, but with him always a step ahead. <laughs> I, Ken, you, you covered the Baltimore Orioles at a, a really interesting time in that franchise's history uh, because of Cal Ripken Jr. and, and his streak of – consecutive games and and you were there when he surpassed 
uh, Lou Gehrig. I guess my first question is how how important is it for a writer to have an experience covering something like this? And, and what did you take away from that experience with all of the attention and all the eyes on that team and that player? Well, it was a lot of pressure, I felt, at the time. I was 32, almost 33, and I was a columnist for the Baltimore Sun, a sports columnist. Now, I was young to be a columnist, pretty much, and I also was not fully formed as a columnist. That's a difficult job to walk into and suddenly start giving your opinions in a town where you're not from, and it's very parochial, and people feel strongly about what they see written. So beyond all that, the real issue for me was this was before the internet. And it was a time when newspapers from around the country would travel to big events like Ripken breaking the record. They would send a reporter. So I never read the Los Angeles times or the Chicago Tribune. And those folks who worked at all these papers around the country never read me. But I knew they'd all be there. I knew they'd all be reading the paper the next day. So I felt a lot of pressure. And it was also a huge event. The president and vice president went. Clinton and Gore. Joe DiMaggio was there representing Lou Gehrig. And it was just one of those nights that you knew was a big deal. I don't know, Jared, that I learned anything especially from it. But I survived it. And that was good enough for me. Was it in, like, do you look back on that? Was it enjoyable or was there just so much pressure that as, as big of a moment as, as much as other people enjoyed it, you just never were able to uh, no, get no, enjoyment? I enjoyed it. Okay. I enjoyed it. And in fact, I wrote really about the victory lap he took around the field. And it was one of those columns that was more descriptive than anything. He did this, he did that. Here's what happened here and there. And I was someone who. After the first deadline, I would rewrite for the second. Then I would rewrite for the third. And that night, I didn't do that. It was a one-shot deal. And that was extremely rare for me. But I was content with what I had. And I'll never forget this. And I tell people this all the time. When I came home that night, my wife, who had been watching, said to me, you know what? I am really glad you got to cover that. That was such a positive thing. Such a great moment. And, you know, she knows what I write about. And... She said, you have to write about so many negative things all the time, different aspects of these different teams. And this was something that was purely positive. And yes, that is how I viewed it. And to this day, people ask me, Jared, all right, what was the best thing you ever covered? What was the biggest moment in your career or your favorite moment, whatever, the biggest thing you've done? And I will say that. And I've covered all these World Series and Olympics and Super Bowls, but that night was the highlight for sure. Am I wrong? I, you know, I certainly don't want to misquote or misrepresent what you wrote, but were, along the way, did you write once or a few times that maybe the streak should not continue because of his performance? Not before he broke the record. Okay, it's after commonly, the fact. This is commonly misinterpreted by people who remember those times and misremember. There were times when I would question things. I remember there was a year he went to the All-Star game, Cal, hitting like 207. And ESPN did a story on him, basically calling him the prisoner of the streak. And I wrote, whoa, this is the first prisoner in history with the key to his own cell. (laughs) And I would question, but I didn't 
actually say it might be time to end until after it was over. And there was a postseason 97, the season of 97. He had real back trouble down the stretch. And the streak was still going on. Two years after, he broke the record. And he was really struggling. And I thought, and I wrote, Orioles are going to the playoffs. Why not just rest and then go, you know, to be ready for the playoffs? He didn't rest. He hobbled down the stretch. And then what happened? He had an amazing playoff. <laughs> that was him. <laughs> he was, every time I wrote something like that, he would prove me wrong. And that was why he was Cal Ripken. Did you find that you would root for, especially early in your career, would you root for your opinions to be proven true and root against, I guess, the alternative? Or were you able at a young age to let that go? Because I hear writers talk about how it's important to, hey, you have an opinion that's great, but you can't get consumed with wanting to be right. uh, And that when you let that go, you're able to grow. Was that... Was that something you dealt with uh, that was a challenge early on, or were you always able to separate those two? That's a good point and a good perspective. I, like other writers, I believe, most other writers, you want your opinions validated. You don't want to be wrong when you're writing opinion-type columns. It's different than writing news stories. But at the same time, when your opinions are wrong, and they are going to be wrong, it's baseball, people have opinions, they're always wrong. The smartest people in the game who run the teams are often wrong. So that's just the nature of it. And you have to understand and be humble about the fact that this is a humbling sport, not just for the players, not just for the executives, but also for the writers. And if you get carried away with yourself, shame on you, because you're going to look stupid. Uh, Last question about that era. Uh, What was your relationship like with Cal Ripken, and how important – is that when, when you've got a guy who is so powerful in, in your ability to, uh, in, in essential and in, in what you're covering, and, and you know, just I, I know with the way players can kind of control a clubhouse, how do you balance uh, the need to have a, like a, a, a positive working relationship with these guys while also feeling the comfort to be honest and not always feel like you, you know, it's, it's roses when that's not the reality? Well, in the specific case of Ripken, 98% of what I wrote was very positive. And why shouldn't it have been? He was a great player, did some great things. While approaching the record, he would sign autographs for fans into the night. They would line up in Camden Yards in the aisles. He'd sign until 12, 1 a.m. And it was amazing to see. And there were a lot of instances like that. But he was a guy also who was quite sensitive, as a lot of players are. And he did not like to be questioned, even a little bit. And sometimes I would do that. That was my job as an opinion columnist. And I would live with the ramifications. He was generally, almost always, actually I should say always, always professional. Um, He always would answer questions. He might get snippy. But I couldn't worry about maintaining the relationship in that job as much. You write your opinion. You live with it, and if a guy doesn't talk to you, that's the way it is. It's still that way for me. And sometimes it regards breaking news that people might not feel comfortable with, whatever the case might be. Your, your obligation is to your reader, and if relationships blow up, they blow up. And there'll be others you can go to, and 
It's just the way it is. Now, people might say, well, you have to maintain a relationship with this guy, that guy. Yes, it's true. And I try to. I don't try to blow up relationships. And I'm always open if someone has a problem with someone, something that I've written. But at the same time, there are times people just say, that's enough. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And that's just the way it is. All right. Can you now spend a ton of time doing TV stuff, whether it's for Fox or MLB Network? And, and you know, I, I don't know if that was ever an aspiration. I know a lot of people in your position uh, whose foundation is, is writing have said, you know, hey, I, I just wanted to be a writer. I, I didn't, you know, this was not a, a goal of mine. Uh, what was, I guess, your relationship with uh, the pursuit of TV and and what was it like when you first started to work on the TV side, and, and what is it like now? It was not an aspiration because it was not even possible when I started. There was no ESPN, no talk radio, really. These things were starting then, but Peter Dammons had not yet gone on ESPN. Bob Ryan had not yet gone on ESPN. There was no outlet for sports writers to become people on television. So it's not even something that occurred to me. My dad would say, when I was in school, and I graduated in 1984, he was worried that I would never make money, for good reason. And he would say, maybe you can get on TV one day. And the only people on TV back then were the nightly sportscasters. They'd talk for three minutes or whatever it was, give the highlights, and I didn't have much interest in that. And I would tell him, Dad, I'm never going to be on TV. you got to get this through your head. And, of course, it became a great joke later on when I was on TV. Hey, <laughs> look at this. You got on TV. So that is kind of where it came from. But it was not an easy transition for me. It took me a while to get comfortable. It took me a while to understand what the proper way to deliver a message on television was. And even today, it's not the most natural thing in the world for me. So... It was a process, and it wasn't something I wanted to do. But once Peter Gammon set the path for all of us, Tim Kirchin and Buster Olney, John Heyman, Joel Sherman, Jeff Patton, everybody, we all owe a debt to Peter. Once he set that path, and then it became a way to increase your identity and increase your exposure and, of course, make some more money, yes, then it was something sure I wanted to do. I was going to ask, you know, what what your initial challenges were. I guess you kind of went into that. You're on TV in, in different capacities, whether it's the in-game reporting role or uh, contributing to, to some of these studio shows. Which one of those is more challenging, of, of the different roles you play on TV? The in-game reporting. You don't have much time to say what you need to say. You've got to get it right, and... It's spontaneous. I'm prepared. I've got 15 topics for every game that I'm prepared to do. And I've got others in my head that I can do if the announcers want to go in a certain direction. But you never know exactly how it's going to go. The game dictates it. So that is the most difficult. And the single most difficult thing I do is right before a playoff game, Tom Verducci and I will both give, I don't know, a 30-second report. And... It's live. It's before a stadium that's packed and getting louder because the game is about to start. And it has to be timed in a certain way because the game is going to start. So 
that to me is the single most pressurized situation and the most difficult. And you asked me what I struggled with at first. I spoke too fast. And I was always in a rush to get everything out. I didn't know how to frame a delivery at all. I, I, I was a little bit of a mess. <laughs> and it took some time. It took coaching. And after I got coached, then I had to kind of go to a point where I was more natural, but incorporating what the coach said. So it was this process where I went up and down, up and down. And like I said, it wasn't easy for me. All right, Ken, I, I want to ask you, I, I'll never forget when I first moved back to uh, the DFW area, which is where I grew up, and it was, I guess it was 2014. So I, I didn't start in my current role a part of our radio crew until 2015. I did, however, fill in in 2014, and I happened to be there the day that Ron Washington uh, suddenly resigned. And I'll never forget, you know, I've, I, I really have, I, I've never been... Uh, at any real professional level, a writer, certainly not a beat writer. And, and I'll never forget all the beat writers, the, the the main guys who covered the Rangers. At that point, it became a race to try and figure out why the heck Ron Washington, the most successful manager in franchise history, had resigned. They were all, I mean, you, you know what the press box, uh, you know, at the old, I guess now the old Globe yeah. Life Park was like. And they were all kind of in that, that uh, walkway area or some even out on the concourse texting and calling and it was just this furious race and i i'd really never seen anything like that And i guess i'm curious uh what is it like to be a part of that race when you are you know you're up against however many other people are trying to get that story first what is what is that like exciting exasperating frustrating thrilling kind of a range of human emotions <laughs> tense and it depends on the story. That Now, that one, I wasn't involved in that per se, because that was mostly the beat guys going for that, although we were all, I'm sure, trying to find out. That's tough when everybody's going for the same thing, and it's just who has the best relationship with someone that might get it first. It's That's tough. It's hard to win. And the other part that's tough is at times when no one knows, but you know something, and you're trying to get it confirmed because you know somebody's going to find out what you know at some point. And that whole process, I know it's a big part of my job, but at the same time, a lot of people view it as somewhat silly, and they're not wrong. Because if I get something, let's say Chris Woodward contract extension, all right, just for the sake of discussion, if I have this, well, okay, I'll report it. And then two minutes after I report it, someone's going to confirm it. And then others are going to confirm it. And it's really a victory, but it's, I don't know that there's great meaning in it. So over the years, last couple of years, I've tried to do some other things to kind of distinguish myself without having to rely on that to distinguish myself. And you do that through the written word and coming up with fresh angles that no one else has and maybe stories that no one else has, not just tweets of information. Is How much has Twitter influenced this? the whole breaking stories side of things? Uh, hugely. And it's changed everything because it used to be you needed two sources at least to get into the newspaper, and there was a great, great fear of being wrong. 
and Twitter has eliminated the two-source thing. It's eliminated, not for all of us, but for many people, the fear of being wrong, because on Twitter, the atmosphere is, oh, that's wrong. Well, okay, just give us the next one. Now, granted, if someone is wrong enough times, that person will lose credibility. But I don't know that people will follow on Twitter recognize that so well. So it's much more of a race, and there's less context given on a breaking news story because it's a tweet first. And we try in The Athletic to you know, give as much context as possible after the news breaks, or sometimes break it in The Athletic. But it's definitely changed it. It does enable people to get the information sooner, but I don't know that it's always been a change for the better. Ken, I know relationships are a huge part of your role, uh, and, and, and they are in mine. And I think as far as my role is concerned, I have the advantage in that I am with the guys on the Rangers every single day. And I have the ability time-wise to not constantly – have to talk to them about something that is pressing you know a a lot of my conversations with them are just whatever conversations you'd have shooting the breeze with someone for for someone in your role you know you spend a few days in in this city and that city and that city and and you're you're constantly on the go go how do you how, how do you go about developing these relationships without the players necessarily feeling like it's just this total transactional thing but genu- uh, de- uh, develop these genuine relationships because it seems like uh, you have that and, and you must do a great job at that. But I, I think it's a challenge when you're not just sitting there covering one team. It is. And certainly it is different in that sense than being a beat person or someone like yourself, Jared, who is around the team all the time. I've got a couple of advantages in this regard. One, I've been around a long time. So I know people. Two, I'm on television. So the players know who I am if they're paying attention on television, as most of them are. I wouldn't say most of them are reading me or anybody else, but they certainly know who the guys on TV are. So that gives me kind of a leg up. And I do text with certain players. I maintain relationships. When I do a broadcast, I'll talk to a lot of players. And it just goes kind of from there. That's the only way I can really describe it. But a lot of it, honestly, comes from being on TV, I must say, because that changed. It changed your exposure. It changed your identity. And it made you more visible to the players. They know who you are. All right, Ken, last question. I I appreciate you doing this. This is uh, taking a, uh, a detour. It, it does not have to be tied to your professional career at all. What is something that you would like to learn or, or try? Well, I don't know that there's anything right now. There are certainly places I'd like to travel to, but I will say this. The one regret I have, biggest regret I have, is not learning Spanish and staying with it at a younger age. I'm not going to do it now. I'm 57. It's, I just don't know that it's going to happen <laughs> for me and I don't have much time, but had I done that and been more serious about it, I took it in high school, but at the same time, if I had stayed with it and understood where my career was maybe heading, which I did not understand, I was not even a guy focused on baseball. I just want to cover sports. Then I would have been more diligent about that because the players 
who are Spanish speakers first, they greatly appreciate any effort you might make to communicate with them in their first language. And I'm not someone who could do that. And like I said, that's a big regret for me.